Last week was December 7th, 2023. It was the 82nd anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Um, when Pearl Harbor happened, there were actually many warning signs that occurred right before the attack. And if our military had paid attention to not even all of them, but just even one of them, we would have been prepared for the attack and maybe probably could have prevented it, at least prevented it from being the, the disaster that it was. Um, the attack happened at 7.55. At 6.45 a.m., the radar in Hawaii picked up two Japanese floating scout planes who were you know, on reconnaissance before the, the main wave of attackers. The radar picked it up, but when the message was sent to Central Command, they, they ignored it. At 6.37 a.m. that morning, so even earlier, there was a destroyer named the USS Ward that was on patrol in the mouth of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is a, is a harbor where, where we had all of our, the, the Pacific fleet had all of its ships there. Uh, there was one destroyer in the mouth of that harbor doing, uh, defending it, doing sentry, when it saw an unknown submarine, it attacked it and sunk it, and the commander of that destroyer sent a message to Pearl saying, we found, we attacked, and we dropped depth charges on this unidentified submarine. But that signal was, that warning was ignored. At 7.15 a.m., 40 minutes before the attack, there was a radar station, another radar station on the north, northernmost tip of the island of Oahu. If you know your map, Pearl Harbor is on the southernmost tip, southernmost part of the island of Oahu. On the northernmost tip, uh, at, a, at a high place, there was a radar that detected a large mass of at least 50 planes, 88 miles away. You know, the Japanese were that day, or the week before, they were sailing from Japan, but toward the north of Hawaii, and they would attack south. They would attack Hawaii from the north. So they would come south and, and attack Pearl Harbor. So that radar detected 50 planes at least when the planes were still 88 miles away. But the commander, the lieutenant who was in charge, believed that that radar signal was actually a flight group from California. Not mentioning that the flight group from California was only supposed to be 12 planes, and this was obviously not 12 planes, at least 50 planes. That warning was ignored. 40 minutes later at 7.55 a.m., disaster struck. Disaster struck because we ignored all the warning signs. Today, we have a passage where God gives us warning signs about the last days. It behooves us to pay attention to these warning signs. Um, last week, we talked about this passage again, uh, 
last week, uh, not last week, the last previous sermon we talked about this passage. Today we're going to talk about the second half of verses 1 through 5. But just for today, this is what we're going to do. First, we're going to review what we talked about the last time, the warning signs that God gave in the previous, uh, in the first couple of verses, first two verses. Then we're going to focus on the second half of these verses, talking about what does it mean when some people forbid to marry and forbid to eat certain foods. And then last, we're going to talk about what does it mean when Scripture says these things are actually okay because they are sanctified by word and prayer. Okay, so first, review. Some of the warning signs that we see in verses 1 through 5, or especially the first two verses. God talks about, in the last days, there will be increasing uh, departures from faith. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. And then it lists a whole bunch of warning signs about what those departures might look like. The Bible talks about deceiving spirits. We talked about last time how uh, that basically means false teaching, but cloaked or disguised in spirituality, or as we were talking about this morning, mysticism, some kind of mystical uh, cloak. But really underneath what you have is false teaching. The reason they have to do this is because if you plainly tell somebody something that's false, they're not going to buy it. You have to we used this example last time. If you're going to sell somebody a lemon for a car, you're not going to, have to tell it it's car accident history. You're not going to give it give the buyer the Carfax history. You're going to appeal to their other senses, their emotions, their uh, maybe their perception about themselves. You know, if you buy this car, you're going to be a great person. Um, or they're going to have a bunch of other bells and whistles for you uh, to deceive you, to convince you to buy into that false teaching. We talked about last time how basically that is what's going on today in our world with the prosperity gospel. That is a false gospel. There is no magic water or no secret uh, prayer that you can pray where God will make your every dream come true. What they are selling you is a lemon. But why do people flock to the prosperity gospel? It's because they have these huge productions, big stadiums and, and bands that, that, that play on your emotions and, and, and tug at your other senses, offering you something else, a higher spirituality, perhaps. But it's really false teaching. Another warning sign. The Bible talks about doctrines of demons. And to us, that sounds like did you see this week the, the news from the Iowa State Court, uh, State House where they had the that that uh, that statue of Satan that was <laughs> beheaded? When the Bible talks about doctrines of demons, I think that's where our mind goes is you know teachings about satanic rituals and things like that. But really, that's not the sole focus of Scripture with that phrase. If you look in Scripture about how Satan actually deceives. For example, in the garden with Eve, Satan made Eve question the truthfulness of God's word on a minor, seemingly minor point. Satan asked Eve, 
did God really say that this fruit was, you know, if you eat of it, you shall surely die? I mean, basically, the dispute was over fruit. But by doing that, by questioning the veracity of God's word in that little part, Satan was able to, to drive a wedge between God, between Eve and Adam and God. Did God really say you can't eat that fruit? Minor thing. Did God really say that creation was in six literal 24-hour days? Did God really say that elders and deacons must be the husband, very gender-specific, sex-specific word, that the husband of one wife, that only men could be elders and deacons? Did God really say that justification was by faith alone? And when we say faith alone, we mean faith alone, not faith in accordance with works or faith initially, but later on final judgment in accordance with your works. Another warning sign. The Bible talks about people who speak lies and hypocrisy. People who say one thing, but live a different way. You know, we give so much leeway to church pastors and leaders the the bigger their ministry the more leeway we give to someone in their conduct in their private lives the more a person has a platform the bigger their church the the, the more books they write the more we as christians tend to overlook the quote-unquote hypocrisies or flaws that they have privately or in their families, or in their personal life. The more we're willing to forgive. And maybe we're willing to hold them accountable for a short time, but the more willing we're, able, we're willing to, after that short time, bring them on back so they can have that platform again. We tend to say things like, well, they're still doing stuff for God, and the work, you know, the, the, the work that they do is, is invaluable, too valuable. Uh, for us to to uh, to keep away, but Scripture warns us against people, hypocrites, Pharisees, basically is what Jesus uh, equated them to. Uh, people who speak lies in hypocrisy. One other warning: people with a conscience seared with a hot iron, meaning. People who have no conscience. What does that look like? Uh, Paulette, this morning you brought up uh, you brought up that that question with homosexuality. Um, this is where it connects in in our sermon in Romans one. Romans one describes this process where, as we rebel against God, God increasingly gives us over to our rebellion. Basically, God hardens our heart because we want to. But as it, there, there's a cycle, as our hearts are hardened by God, we become even more rebellious. And God, in response to that, gives us even more over to our rebellion. And then 
we rebel more, and then God gives us even more over to our rebellion. And it's interesting in Romans 1, as the cycle progresses, in, you know, as that downward cycle progresses, uh, it lists more and more specific sins. Specifically, uh, women who give up natural relations with men and, and have unnatural relations with women and men who do the same. Basically talking about homosexuality. As a sign, as an example, as an illustration of God giving us more and more and more over to our sinfulness and our lusts. I would say that by the time that God has hardened you to that point, your conscience is seared. You have no conscience. You don't feel bad. You say, I was born with it, or God made me this way. Or you say, because God made him this way, he should be a pastor. You shouldn't talk bad about him, or you shouldn't excommunicate him from church. Instead of heeding these warnings, what is happening in our, I don't want to say world, because what ha actually happens in a lot of overseas places is these countries that have house churches and that need evangelists and preachers and want to see the gospel grow, they tell American missionaries to stay away, keep your theology away from us. Because we're 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 in a we're in a deep spin cycle of 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 uh, of, of we're in a deep uh, downward spin cycle. The American church, instead of heeding these warnings, we are instead increasingly embracing those things that are that we are warned against. We are embracing those things. They are okay. Actually, if you dare to speak out against, let's say, people with a conscience seared by a hot iron, you are the schismatic. You are the unloving, and you get kicked out of church. But I want us to see how Scripture paints everything. What we might accept and what we might, I'm, I'm saying we in general, what we might accept and we, what we might find commonplace, what we might find to be a little issue, the allowance of women to be elders and deacons, is condemned by strong terms in Scripture. That is a doctrine of a demon. I mean, I don't think you can find any harsher label than that. Those were the warnings that we talked about the last time. Today, uh, beginning in verse 3, a couple more warnings. Warnings against those, if you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 3, warning, uh, the Bible warns us against those who forbid to marry and command uh, us to abstain from certain foods. Now, as Protestants, we might not encounter those false teachings so much. Uh, at least, you know, in my experience in church, I've not yet gone to a church where a pastor has, I've not gone to a church, I've not, in all of my exposure to churches, you know, reading in the, about uh, churches 
articles about churches, uh, you know, seeing them on uh, video or, or, or on YouTube or whatever, different types of church, church services. I have not yet encountered uh, a Protestant church that taught you can't marry or you can't eat certain types of foods. I might be wrong, but I haven't encountered that so much. Um, I know the Catholic Church still forbids to marry. Uh, I know that there might be uh, certain churches, very liberal churches, that you know that focus on having a special kind of diet, okay, for their personal wellness. Um, but in general, I think this 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 idea of forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, uh, we don't encounter that so much. In, in Protestant churches. So we might wonder where do these false teachings come from? Why, why get so specific here? Um, it comes from this idea of Gnosticism. Now I tried to explain Gnosticism last time. I don't think I did a very clear job. So let me try to do it again. Gnosticism. This was a big heresy, probably the big, the biggest heresy at the time of the writing of First Timothy in the time of the early church. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. Okay, G-N-O-S-I-S, Paula. G-N-O-S-I-S, for the Greek word, you know. All right, for the Greek word, knowledge. Now, knowledge is good, right? We are supposed to have knowledge. But Gnosticism prescribes this kind of secret knowledge, higher transcendental knowledge that they supposedly say we're supposed to strive for. This secret knowledge specifically says this, that all of nature, all of nature is divided in two parts. There is the physical fleshly part that is inherently evil, cannot be saved. It's, it was evil from the beginning and it's evil now and it's always be, be evil. Anything fleshly, anything physical is evil. Whereas anything that's non-physical, anything that's spiritual is inherently good from the beginning to the end. Okay, so they had a dualistic, this was the secret knowledge, that the world was this dualistic framework where anything physical was evil and anything non-physical or spiritual was good. That was basically what you could call their doctrine of sin or the doctrine of man, is that sin isn't so much what we commit, but sin is what is fleshly, physical with us, physical things. And there's nothing you can do with it. Anything that's physical is sinful. And anything that's not physical, your soul, your spirit, is inherently good. And so this led, that doctrine of sin, led to two it kind of doesn't make sense, but if you think about it, you know, you, you draw that theology to its conclusion. It led people to, to two very different conclusions or goals or what we might call doctrines of salvation. Okay. The first one said this, since we, since we are good in our souls and our spirit. Okay. Since we, since that part of us is good and that part of us is saved and always is saved or always is, you know, right with God, then it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. 
then go and do whatever you want in the flesh. Indulge. Okay? Um, this is what John talks about, what he counters in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, Anyone who says, I know him, meaning I know God, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. John was writing against Gnostics who concluded that since we're saved in the soul, then it doesn't matter what you do in the body, in the flesh. You could just do whatever you want. You know, it's like you get out of jail card. So just like, use it. <laughs> and John says, no, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. The other far extreme where Gnosticism leads is, uh, if, if whatever physical is evil and inherently bad, then the goal in life is to root out any dependence or any pleasure that you have from physical things, such as foods or marriage. The other, these are two extremes, right? One says, indulge in fleshly things. And the other says, don't indulge in fleshly things. Get rid of them. The other one, the second way says, the way to be saved is to not only get rid of all enjoyment and dependence on fleshly things and to dive inward into your soul, to know yourself better, you know, to know your true self is salvation. Uh, this second goal is what we might call asceticism, where... Uh, monasteries, right, where people went to become monks and to deprive themselves of any reliance or, or enjoyment from physical, from physical things, including marriage and including certain foods. Uh, interestingly, when Martin Luther, you know, wrote the 95 Thesis and then began the Reformation, one of the major focuses of that reformation at the beginning was his, uh, you know, Martin Luther was a monk. Mm -hmm. He tried to get rid of dependence on physical things. So much so that, you know, he bugged his supervisor who told him, you're doing this too much. You're racking your, 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 yourself too much. And Martin Luther always came back to the idea, well, I'm not doing it enough. If the way for me to get saved is to, to get rid of all these, you know, uh, to, to, to achieve some kind of higher spirituality or, or to, 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 to abstain from, from dependence on physical things. How do I know I'm doing enough to be saved? Uh, and, and so, so Martin Luther started the, uh, he, part of, a major part of his reformation was his insistence that we not rely on that type of higher knowledge or high, uh, uh, spiritualism for a second type of righteousness but we rely on the righteousness of Christ alone. And part of that means it's okay to be married. It's okay to have foods. I said we don't deal with, we may not deal with Gnosticism. Uh, or let me change this. We might not deal so much in, let's say, reform circles. Churches that teach you can't marry, or churches that teach you can't eat certain foods. Okay, I don't know. Um, maybe maybe there are some churches, reformed churches that 
teach that heresy, that you can't marry and you can't eat certain foods. But I will say that Gnosticism or forms of Gnosticism still exist today in Reformed circles. Just not those specific teachings about forbidding marriage and forbidding food. But Gnosticism still remains. Think about this. Any time that we have a church that teaches that all you have to do, the most important thing you have to do as a Christian person is to know your true self, to get to know what is really inside you, your need, your personality, your your you know your your mental health status you know the 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 main thing in life is to know yourself more and more and more and more that is gnosticism anything that says that the way you know the way to become a better christian is to um How should I put this? Anything that says the way to become any, okay, let's just boil it down to a nutshell. Anything that says that there is any type of righteousness in some spiritual work that you do, that, that, that gets you right with God. That is Gnosticism. You know, if you're more spiritual, if you have a second dose of the Holy Spirit, if, you, if you're able to speak in tongues, prof, right, or, or, or do miracles or see visions, then, then, then that gets you closer to God. I mean, that's basically what Gnosticism taught, was this other form of getting right with God. This other form of righteousness, apart from the righteousness of Christ alone. I'll even say this, maybe a soft Gnosticism. Worship services, where the main goal isn't to glorify God or to open God's word and expound it simply and clearly. Worship services where the main goal is to get people's spiritual highs. You know, dance, performance art. Because then the, the, the goal is spiritual highs and not the grounded in the word of God. Uh, that is a soft Gnosticism, seeking that higher spirituality, that mysticism that's out there. So, no, we might not see teachings that forbid marriage and abstaining from foods in, in Reformed churches so much today, but we do see its parent it's Gnosticism still in many of our churches. That's a warning sign. Now, how do we know? How do we know that marriage is good <laughs> and foods are good? Well, the Bible says clear, it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Look at verses three to five. God created these things, marriage and food, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be, is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. To be sanctified by the word of God and prayer simply means this. If God says it's okay in his word, then it's okay. But even if God says something is okay in his word, 
you have to receive it with thanksgiving. It's both. Okay? Just because something is okay by God's word doesn't mean that it's just okay. You can just selfishly take it and make it an idol. Right? We all we make idols of good things all the time, including marriage. I remember as a single person, I was single for a long time. It was a struggle to not make marriage an idol. And yet to say it's a good thing. But it's also not, you have to have both, right? The word of God has to sanction it, but you have to receive it with thanksgiving. You can't just take the thing that God says is good without thanksgiving and make it an idol. But you can't also just pray about it without it being sanctioned in the word of God. Right? I've seen friends, not friends, uh, people that my friends know that justify their divorce and their affairs because they say they prayed about it. And God showed them that person B was really, was, was really the one meant for them and not person A. So it's got to be both. Well, you might say, where, where specifically does God sanctify in his word? Marriage and food. Well, we read these things, right? Genesis 9 very clearly says that in the covenant that God made with Noah, uh, God stipulated many things and blessed them with many things. But one of the things that God says at the beginning is all living creatures are for you for food, just as the green herbs are. So there, after the flood, after the whole, after according to the words of Peter, after the world that then was, was completely destroyed and God recreated a world with the covenant to Noah, that covenant, part of that covenant stipulation was all living things are for you for food. So it's okay for us as Americans, that sounds great. For us as Asians, every living thing means every living thing and that might gross us out a little bit, okay? Uh, Every living thing is okay as long as it doesn't have its lifeblood in it. Basically, you know, don't eat it while it's alive. You know, you got to kill it and cook it. Um, not just in Genesis 9, um, but in, uh, let's say, the, the priestly regulations, right? These priestly regulations where God, whatever God commands is allowed. And God says to the priest, your provisions will come from the sacrifices, and you will eat the animal sacrifices. That was forbidden by God, where if some certain foods were not good in God's sight, God wouldn't command it. He wouldn't instruct it as part of worship. You know, I had us read all the way down in Genesis 9 where it talks about the rainbow, right? We, we look at the rainbow today, and, and we remember, oh, that's the covenant. That's the part where God promises that he's not going to destroy the world by water again. But this, the symbol of the rainbow is the symbol for that entire covenant. You see? Right? So when you see a rainbow, you can also think, ah, I can go and eat whatever God says it's okay for me to eat. Okay, that's part of the covenant. The rainbow is a symbol of the entire Noahic, Noahic covenant. What about marriage? Well, Genesis 9 talks about marriage. God says, Go and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, we read the same thing in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. Notice in 1 Corinthians 7 and 8, uh, Paul is writing in response to questions that the Corinthians are posing to him. 
you know, in seven, he says, now I write to you concerning your question about marriage. And then eight, he says, now I write concerning food offered to idols, right? So you know that back then in that church, the main struggle was with Gnosticism, specifically with Gnostic teachings about forbidding to marry and forbidding certain foods. And Paul's responding to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he says marriage is okay and sanctioned by God. He doesn't use the same reasoning as Genesis 9 or Genesis 1. You know, God said, procreate. He says marriage is also good and allowed and God blesses it because of two things. It's a, it's a way for us to deal with our sexual temptation. It's an allowance for us to deal with our sexual temptation. Uh, but then he says also at the end of chapter 7, God gives different gifts to, to, to different people. Even though Paul wishes everyone was single like himself, but God gives different gifts to, to different people. Some, to some, he gives the gift of singleness, and to others, he gives the gift of marriage. But if God gives it as a gift, it's okay. And then with food, it's interesting, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul doesn't come out and say, well, it's okay to eat whatever food at any single, you know, at any time. Basically, he, 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 he says this, we know that even food offered to idols, that's okay for us to eat, okay? But you have to consider who's next to you. If there's a brother that is, if there's a brother next to me that's a Buddhist, okay? And his, his, his conscience is very weak. And he thinks that the food placed in front of that idol means something. Even though you know it means nothing, that peach is just a peach. But still, don't eat it. Because you're going to tempt this brother to, 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 to further believe in Buddhism. Basically, that, that's what Paul says. You have to consider the conscience of the weak brother before you partake in foods. Even though the foods are okay. But basically, I mean, the Bible uses those two illustrations. But basically, the general principle is, if the Word of God says it, then it's okay. But it has to be received in prayer with thanksgiving. It's both. Eighty-two years ago, if those at Pearl Harbor had heeded just one warning, even that last warning, okay, the one where at 7.15, the radar picked up a huge mass of incoming planes 88 miles away. It would have only taken eight to 10 minutes for battleships to be ready. Less time for smaller ships and even less time for people on the ground. Even though it was a Sunday morning, this is what they were trained for. So if we had heeded not all of the warnings, but even just one, even the last one, last minute, heeded that warning at 7.15. By 7.25, maybe at 7.30, we would have been ready. And so when the attack came at 7.55, would have been less of a disaster. It would not have been the date which lives in infamy. 
we, we must not make that mistake with church. You know, God says in 1 Peter chapter 4 that judgment begins in the house of God. Okay? Final judgment. Judgment. When God comes in, judgment begins in church. So we must heed these warnings. And again, I go back to this point where the, the words that God uses to describe these warnings, they are harsh words. Doctrines of demons, deceiving spirits. And yet the examples listed, we, we take these examples are as, wait a sec, these are minor things. He talks about marriage. He talks about food. When we examine how demons actually dealt with or how they deceived men, it was on little things. Things that in the American church overall, we, we take as part of our daily lives. We don't question these things. They're commonplace and they're almost accepted. The teaching, the reminder for us is to see these warnings as God sees them. To see them as God sees them. Um, positively, it's to pray the prayer that we have in our psalm. Psalm, psalm 119. To seek God with our whole heart, verse 10. To not wander from his commandments. To hide his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. To be taught God's statutes. To rejoice in all of God's testimonies. All of God's testimonies. To meditate on his precepts. To contemplate his ways. So as we close and as we uh, recite or sing this psalm, let us use this as a, as a prayer for ourselves and our church, okay, that we would heed, pay attention to these warnings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, your word, which uh, gives us these warnings about how, what the situation is going to be like in the last days. And not just in the world around us, but inside the church. You yourself say that some would depart from the faith, which means they were part within the faith in the first place. So Father, help us to heed these warnings about your church. Help us to not be unprepared when judgment comes. Uh, as you promised, when judgment comes first in the house of God. Lord, help us. Give us grace uh, to, to, to carry out this prayer of the psalmist that we would seek your commands and, and treasure your testimonies and live out your precepts um, with strength, with the grace uh, that you give us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.